Hey guys, welcome back to Sanctify the Saints. We're still going through our theology series. Today we are going to be dealing with part two of theology proper and discussing the Holy Trinity. This is one of the core fundamental beliefs that really makes up the Christian faith and has since the early church. Branches of Christianity, Christianity all over agree on this, whether you're Orthodox, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Protestant and certain denominations of Protestantism. Wow, there are certain groups that abandon this doctrine wrongly so, I would say by doing so, they cease to be Christian because they would then fall under one of the heresies that we will discuss at the end. But I digress, let's continue on. Firstly, there is one God, one God alone. There is none like him. If you turn over in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, it states, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. First Chronicles chapter 17 verse 20. Lord, there is no one like you, and there is no God beside you, as all we have heard confirms. All they have heard. This is First Chronicles is one of the historical writings, and the author is saying everything that they've heard leading up to that point in history confirms the fact that the Israelites had always believed in one God, one God alone. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 6. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord. And there is no other. Right here, we have three key verses that, and there are so many more than these. I've just picked a few because I don't want to rattle off for hours upon hours the fact that there's one God. It is taught consistently through the scriptures that there is one God. He is God alone. There is none like him. There are false gods, but there is nothing like the one true God. <clears throat> You can keep going on. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Even the demons, the rebellious angels against God, believe that there is one God. So James, the brother of Christ, is saying, good. Believe in one God. That is good. Remember, this is the New Testament. The verses I was quoting before were Old Testament. So this is a consistent theme from the old to the new. Back to Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9. Remember what happened long ago. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. Again, stressing the fact. One God, none like him. Unique. Above all else. Isaiah again. Chapter 45 verses 21 through 22. Speak up and present your case. Yes. Let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I the Lord? There is no other God but me. A righteous God and Savior. There is no one except 
me, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So again, one God. Now, Christians agree with this. They agree that there is one God. But with the caveat that we believe there are three divine persons who all share in the one being of God. The three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the Father is a very easy one to defend the fact that he is God. I don't know anybody who would disagree with the fact that the Father is God. Um, it's consistent. The Jewish people believe that their Heavenly Father, their Father, is God. So, let's go ahead and hit the Bible verses because I want to make sure to still substantiate, still defend this, even though it's pretty well agreed upon. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. An idol is nothing. And that there is no God but one. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So these are Jesus' own words right there. Saying there is only one God, you are the God, you are Godfather, not the Godfather. <laughs> All right, so now moving on to things that are more uniquely, distinctly Christian, we believe that the Son, Jesus Christ, is God as well. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, verse 14, and verse 18. So, a little bit jumping around. Feel free to read all in between. Make sure I'm going in context and everything, but I believe this is firmly true even when read in context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So some key words here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Intimate relationship with, side by side, face to face, with God. And the Word was God. Now the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the Son. This is the whole, this is Jesus Christ. <laughs> 
The Son is from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he says, nobody has seen God. The the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So there you see this beginning, right at the beginning of John, this relationship. It's saying that the Son has this intimate relationship with the Father, but that the Father is God and that Jesus is God. They're both God and they have a relationship with one another. They interact with one another. They are by each other's sides. And yet the Son is not the Father and the Father is not the Son. Moving on. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. Now, before I start reading this, the importance of these verses is the fact that God says he will not share his glory with another. The verse reads, I am the Lord, that is my name. And I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So right there we see, God doesn't, the Lord doesn't give his glory to others. Not at all. It's very clear there. But Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 1 and verses 4 through 5 states, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. All right, some key points. So right there. Jesus is asking his father, glorify me as I glorify you. He's saying, I glorified you. I did everything on earth I was supposed to do. And he's saying, now, father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus had that glory with the father side by side, equal glory, sharing that glory Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. It's an intimate relationship. And it states before the world existed, which would mean that Jesus had to have existed prior to creation. That would also communicate the fact that Jesus himself is eternal with the Father. Just like back in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God in the beginning. All right? Continuing on. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 and 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form, we're going to come back to that term, form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. 
And when he had come as a man, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, again, that word glory, to the glory of God the Father. All right. Now, I want to share a little bit of reading. I'm going to be reading from Millard Erickson's book, Christian Theology. I think he does a really good job at discussing some of the verbiage here in this verse. So, this is what Millard Erickson states. <clears throat> a key reference to the deity of Christ Jesus is found in Philippians 2, in verses 5 through 11. Paul has taken what was probably a hymn of the early church and used it as the basis of an appeal to his readers to practice humility. He speaks of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word here, often translated form, is what we see here, is the word morphi in Koine Greek. This term in classical Greek, as well as in biblical Greek, means the set of characteristics that constitute a thing, what it is. It denotes the genuine nature of a thing. So right there it's saying, Christ Jesus, who existing in the very character, very form, very morphos of God. Sorry, not morphos, morphe. Just went right over my head there. <laughs> that Christ Jesus was God in this very, in what makes God, God, and that he emptied himself to become man, that he was God and is God. Now, continuing on, he also mentions, um, continuing on with the verb morphe, it says, not only by the use of morphe, but by the expression equality, isa, with God. It is generally held that the thrust of verse 6 is that Jesus possessed equality with God, but did not attempt to hold on to it. Some have argued, however, that Jesus did not possess equality with God. The thrust of this verse is then that Jesus neither coveted nor aspired to equality with God. Thus, apagmon, a thing to be grasped, should not be interpreted as a thing to cling to, but as a thing to seize. On the contrary, verse 7, though, states that he emptied himself of this thing that he grasped. He had. He, he didn't obtain it. He just, he had it innately, and he emptied himself of it. So it should not be translated as he doesn't want to seize that no the equality with god is this something that he has by nature okay when you read it in context that's what it has to be interpreted as otherwise you're you end up really messing up the flow of what paul is stating here all right continuing on 
We have the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. It states, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Hold on. I'm going to grab a drink real quick. All right, we are back. Drinking some Spindrift sparkling water. All right. So in this passage of Hebrews, Millard Erickson, again, love this guy. Probably one of my favorite theology books. He states about this verse. He then in verse 3 describes the sun as the radiance. The apavgasma. Apavgasma of God's glory and the exact expression or representation of his being. The expression of his being there is charakter tis hypostaseos. So it's the exact expression of God's being. That is who Christ is. While it could perhaps be maintained that this affirms that God revealed himself through the Son rather than that the Son is God, the context suggests otherwise. In addition to identifying himself as the Father, as the Father of the one whom he here calls, God is quoted in verse 8 as addressing the Son as God. In verse ten, and in verse 10, as Lord. This is incredibly important. The book of Hebrews is jam-packed full of proof for Christ's divinity and Christ's fulfillment of all things that, that God had promised. I would encourage you, do further study in the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing book. I would argue that when it comes to deepness and value in theology, Hebrews outweighs the book of Romans. Definitely. Now, continuing on, we're going to go to a little bit more simple of a verse. John chapter 20, verses 27 through 29. It states, Then he, Jesus Christ, said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Right there, Thomas very explicitly states, when he puts his hand and feels the wounds of Christ, my Lord and my God. He is calling Christ his Lord and his God. 
And Jesus affirms this. He's saying, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe this very thing. Mm. Amazing. Now John chapter 8, verses 54 through 58. Jesus here is attributing the divine name of God to himself. The divine name of God. Hold on. Got to make sure I have my... This is very important to me. Chapter 3. This is my Septuagint. I should have had it ready, and I apologize, guys. I just totally spaced on that. It's right here. Jesus says, If I glorify myself... Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. So again, talking about glory and how the father glorifies the son. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now the important thing here. Right here, Jesus staying is saying, before Abraham was, ego imi, I am. That is just the way to say I am in common Greek. Ego imi, I am. Now, what's very important about this is that the Jews later on after this, if you keep reading, they say they're going to stone Christ because they understand what he's saying. He's referencing a verse in the Old Testament here by attributing ego me, the I am, to himself. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, it states, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Now, it's commonly known the I am statement here in the Hebrew, the I am who I am is the divine name where you see the capital letters for the word Lord. The Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you prefer. But when the Greek Empire with Alexander the Great took over Israel and the Israelites translated the Hebrew text into Greek, the Greek says, And God spoke to Moses, saying, Ego imi oon. Ego imi oon. I am that I am. And then he goes on. You are to say to Israel, Israel, oon apastalke me prosh imas. 
I am has sent me to you. The O'on or the Egoimi. The Egoimi O'on. That's together. The I am who I am. The I am that I am. Jesus right there in the previous section we were just reading says before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, Egoimi. And the Jewish people understood this. He was referencing to himself the very name of God as expressed in Exodus chapter 3. Okay? That is extremely important. While it's not an explicit statement, it is a statement that the Jews understood in their day. And when reading the culture and the context about these people that day, it helps us to understand the fact that that's what Jesus was saying. That's what he was communicating when he said before Abraham was, Egoimi. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, with that, that is our justification to say that Jesus, the Son, is God. So, continuing on. Now we are going to justify and talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, it states, Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. So right there, it is more subtle. I will say the Holy Spirit is probably the most difficult to justify, but the verses are still there. There's just a lot fewer of them and a lot less explicit ones. It states here that why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then you read to the end, you have not lied to people, but to God. So lying to the Holy Spirit is being equated with lying to God. They're being equated together. Therefore, it seems, it would seem that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, moving on, John chapter 6, verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, if you look at John chapter 16, it's clear Jesus here is talking about his sending, the sending from the Father of the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Advocate. That when this Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now it is God who can fix the world of sin. It's God who teaches righteousness and judgment. So right here, it's stating first that the Holy Spirit is a personal thing. It is a person. It is coming. It is convicting. It is teaching. Okay? And it is attributing, convicting the world of sin. It is attributing things that the Holy Spirit does as being also the very things that God himself does. So, that is where we find the union there. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, 
Hold with me. There's a lot to read. <sighs> now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One in the same Spirit is active in all of these distributing to each person as he wills. So, the Holy Spirit is active, and the Holy Spirit is the one distributing these gifts of the Spirit. And prior, Paul is talking about in this book that the get, there are all these different gifts, same Lord, different ministry, different gifts, but same Spirit. Different ministries, but the same Lord. Different activities, but the same God works all of them. So it's talking about Lord, God, Spirit. The Spirit being active and the Spirit distributing as He wills. So the Holy Spirit has a will. It is a person. And it seems to be communicating that the Spirit is on par, equal with God. Alright? Now, a couple more verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you. Alright, God's temple, Spirit of God lives in you. This Spirit is God and the Spirit living in you is what makes you God's temple. Continue on, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So there it's, a, it's very explicit. The Spirit of God lives in you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Spirit of God. Same thing. So, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Whom you have from God. You are not your own. So, the Holy Spirit is God. And you have the Holy Spirit from God. Interesting. So there it's, equates the Holy Spirit with the Spirit of God. You are God's temple because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And it's differentiating, saying God is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So I would say God here is probably a reference to the Father. So it's saying the Father is the one whom you have the Holy Spirit from. So, right there, that's my justification for the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Trinity, three divine persons as equals. Now we're going to talk about, I'm only going to bring up three verses. Three verses to justify that all these three persons, divine persons, are equals in the way they are God. So first, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right there, Paul is the one writing, and he seems to be communicating that all three are intimately connected in the workings of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So again, right there in the same chunk, talking about all three divine persons and how their workings cooperate and work together as equals. They might do different things to fulfill that one very purpose, but they are all equals and they are all God. So, the Holy Trinity was further... Um, not developed, but expressed in the Nicene Creed through the, through the early church. They stated, this creed states, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. So right there, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the only begotten son of god born of the father before all ages god from god light from light true god from true god begotten not made consubstantial with the father through him all things were made so right there pause it's stating the father made all things and that through the son all things were made all right continuing on for us, men, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death, and was buried, and rose again on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. And lastly, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Nicene Creed. I would recommend really digging into this to see just how they are communicating the divine persons and the one being of God. I think it's amazing. So, the Holy Trinity is the belief that there is one divine being, essence, nature of God, 
which constitutes what he is, and that there are three divine persons, which constitute who he is. All three persons co-equally share the entire being of God, i.e. the Father's 100% God, the Son's 100% God, God and the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is 100% God. And all three persons of the Holy Trinity are co-eternal with one another, not having beginning nor end. They're co-eternal, not made, not created. They are uncreated. But none of the divine persons can be confused with one another. I, the Father's not the Son, also vice versa is not true. The Son's not the Holy Spirit, vice versa is not true. The Holy Spirit's not the Father, vice versa is not true. So you see, the divine persons cannot be confused with one another. They are not each other. They're separate. They're different. And yet, they are one being of God. That is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Put, hopefully, semi-simply. <laughs> now, there are a lot of heresies that were taught through church history and still today that try to combat the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And that's what we're going to be addressing right now. The first one is Sabellianism, also known as modalism. It's the theological doctrine that the members of the Trinity are not three distinct persons, but rather three modes or forms of activity. So that... God would manifest himself sometimes as the Father. Other times, he'd put away the Father and manifest himself as the Son, and so on and so forth. That he will, at times, appear in different ways as the different persons. But that is how it relates. So that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are all God, and yet... The Father is just another representation of God rather than being a different person of God. Does that make sense? Another common heresy, and it's still, I mean, taught to this day, for instance, with the Jehovah's Witness Church. It's called Arianism. It teaches an influential heresy denying the divinity of Christ originating with the Alexandrian priest Arius. Arianism teaches that the Son of God was created by the Father, and so that the Son is neither co-eternal or consubstantial with the Father, meaning the Son of God is not the very uncreated being of God. Rather, the Son of God is just another creation. The way the Jehovah's Witnesses word it is, this, Jesus Christ is the first and greatest creation of God. Okay? And that God through the Son created all things after he created him. So, that is Arianism. And that was rampant in the early church. Another heretical doctrine is called partialism. It teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together make up the components of the one God, but they are each only a part of God, meaning they are not, they don't co-equally possess the 100% being of God. Maybe the Holy Spirit, I mean, cut them into equal parts, 
The Father's 33.3 repeating percent of God. The Son is the same percentage. And the Holy Spirit's the same percentage. None of them are entirely God. They are just partially God. Which is heretical, <laughs> to say the least. Another one is tritheism. This, I've heard a lot. This is what Muslims believe we as Christians believe about the Holy Trinity. That's what I've typically heard. And this is what Mormons will obviously will often think that we believe about the Holy Trinity, about God. Tritheism confesses that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are all independent divine persons and separate gods from one another who share the same purpose or substance. It's a common mistake of misunderstanding the use of the term persons in being when defining the Holy Trinity. And that is the last heretical doctrine I wanted to talk about. All of these things are incredibly important because at the very core, as I said at the beginning, one of the core fundamental aspects of the Christian faith and of the biblical narrative through the Old Testament and New Testament is the fact that there are one God, is one God, and that there are three divine persons who cooperate with and are in intimate relationship with one another, and all are called God. They are all attributed Godhood in divinity. Without the Holy Trinity, we would rely on mystery, probably. But the Church Fathers have done a tremendous work at trying to help us to understand what the biblical narrative is teaching. They weren't trying to deceive people. They were trying to properly dissect the Word of God so as to communicate the truths within it. That is what the Nicene Creed is. That's what the Apostles' Creed is, and so on and so forth. They were summarizations of beliefs that they believed were fully present and evident in the biblical scriptures. That is what the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is. I hope you guys enjoyed this video. I hope you guys learned something. And I hope that I wasn't too distracting to you. If you guys really enjoyed this video... I would appreciate if you guys would leave me a comment, letting, let me know what you liked, what you didn't like. If there's any way I can make it better in the future, I would love to change some things around to help you guys be better equipped and be better able to understand the doctrines that define the Christian faith. And with that being said, I thank you all for watching. God bless. Thank mm -hmm. you.